Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. LMFM Podcasts, brought to you with Cartman Cross Credit Union, where a student loan can help you finance your further education. Call to Cartman Cross Credit Union, O'Neill Street, or cartmancrosscu.ie. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Monday morning, the 15th of April. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The stark reality of living in poverty is highlighted in a report published today according to Social Justice Ireland. 760,000 people live on an income below the poverty line. That's 15.7% of us or one in six people living in poverty. The number is even higher when adults are excluded. 18.4% of all of the children in this country or one in five people under the age of 18 live in poverty, some 230,000 children. The Social Justice Ireland Poverty in Ireland report 2019 also found one in four children to be experiencing deprivation with 110,000 children living in consistent poverty. Sean Healy, Director of Social Justice, on the line with us uh, this morning. Good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us as always with this uh, very grim news. Uh, There are dull lives, uh, indeed difficult lives, uh, that so many children are living in this country. Absolutely. I think uh, the reality is that children, of course, are a a particularly important group, uh, not just uh, now, but for the future as well, because the implications of of the fact that they're in poverty are quite serious for the future. Very simple thing that people will understand very clearly. If if children are living in poverty, then their education achievements are actually impacted on. Uh, That's very, very is tough on them at that time, but it also has major implications for their job prospects into the future. And that's not that's something not just about society in Ireland and the fact that society would lose out, but the fact that the economy will lose out because its economic potential in the long term is being reduced because of the, the fact that so many children are not going to be able to perform to their full educational um, ability, capacity, uh, potential. And I think that's one of the reasons that this issue needs to be tracked and it needs to be not just tracked, but it needs to be uh, uh, tackled and can be tackled effectively. For example, we would argue very clearly that it is possible to eliminate child poverty in Ireland in five years if the political will was there to actually do that. 
All right. Should it be as high as it is uh, this morning? It seems like an incredible amount of children, 230,000 children said to be below the poverty line. Absolutely, and I think the reason that we're highlighting it in this this year's Poverty Focus uh, publication is that it tends to sort of pass us by, if you like, and uh, we look at things like people in emergency accommodation and stuff mm-hmm. of that nature, and we see some thousands of children there, um, well over 3,000 uh, heading towards 4,000, uh, acknowledged by government as being in emergency accommodation and so on, but then we kind of don't sort of see it as the broader reality that it actually is. And I think we, it, you know, it, 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 we need to sort of recognize that living in poverty is a reality for one in five children. Um, that's, as you say, 230,000 uh, children. Mm. And this issue can be addressed effectively. That's another piece of the problem that isn't being faced. In, in, in five years, you say. But Absolutely. I suppose the, the, the question I'm asking you is, should it be this bad this morning? No, it shouldn't, without a shadow of a doubt, Michael. Yeah. It should not yeah. uh, be this bad. And it doesn't have to be this bad. If we were serious about it, we would actually tackle it. How do we tackle it? Basically, we have a situation, first of all, to recognise that the child can't be lifted out of poverty without lifting the child's family out of poverty. You can't take the child out of poverty and and still leave the household the child lives in in poverty. That's nonsense. Mm-hmm. So you have to basically look at a strategy that lifts families out of poverty. And to do that, you have to, to, to look at the, the components of the, like what's causing the, the poverty. One thing, for example, that's causing the poverty is uh, a, lot, a lot of people, almost one in, like five, almost 5% of all those with jobs, uh, actually uh, are living in households with poverty and like almost 15% of all those in poverty actually live in a household with a person with a job in that household. Mm. So I think we need to face, face the fact that in that context if we're going to deal with that we have to take policies focused on reducing working poor and to do that all we've got to do as a first step is to make tax credits refundable in other words to make sure that the the, the system the tax system has changed slightly so that people benefit from the full value of the tax credit that they're entitled to by definition that change will only help low income workers We've shown how it can be done and how it can be paid for, and it would have a big impact in terms of tackling that particular component of the families that are in poverty. Now, that won't do the whole thing because obviously you have to take a look at adequate adult social welfare rates as well, and that's a, that's an important issue in this context because the the actual social welfare rates are themselves below the poverty line. But am so I right in, in thinking that this is a, a problem that is actually getting worse instead of getting better uh, and that a, a couple of years ago you'd have been talking about consistent poverty rates for children of about 11%? That's, that is absolutely true. But the overall poverty uh, number has kind of got stuck. If you think about it this way, it's gone up and down. But 25 years ago, 1994, the overall percentage of society in of the, the population in poverty was 15.6%. Today it's 15.7%. So 25 years of Celtic Tiger up and crashes down and all the rest of it, we wind up in a situation where the same, practically the same uh, percentage of the population is in poverty. And the reason for that is that I think we've got to, got to a point where we think it's okay to have 15% of the population in poverty. Mm. We don't have to have that. You could, okay, I wouldn't be saying you can actually eliminate to all poverty 100% because there's always going to be difficulties at the, at the margin but there is nothing to stop us from having the level of poverty and doing that overall in a, in a, in a five year term and within that 
tackling child poverty as a priority so that we lift the families with children in it in them out of uh, poverty and that means in effect having a big impact not just for this generation but for the future generation as well and for not just having positive societal impacts but having positive economic impacts as well. Mm. Uh, Because these children are living uh, without what many of us would consider to be fundamentals, uh, basic things in life. That's right. And like, I think it's, it's you know, you're, you're thinking in terms or you're talking in terms of the kinds of things that, uh, that are straightforward, like in terms of uh, people that, that people would, uh, in, in fact, uh, take for granted, if you like. So having um, the hot meal and a number of um, times in the week, that mm. kind of thing. Um, and I think it's important, if you like, to take a look at at the kind of there's a series of things that that get measured to show whether people are in deprivation as well as in poverty itself. Uh, Poverty being measured by the income, the deprivation being measured by a, a range of other things like whether they have they ha- they have a warm winter coat or the mm. two pairs of shoes those kinds of things and what we have in effect is the situation where one in four children are, are living in households de- experiencing deprivation mm. in two or more of those basic necessities so or even to be able to afford meat every second day not even second. every day Exactly. Like it's not. It's not in any sense a set of excessive uh, basic necessities that are identified in there, but yet it, it's it's straightforward enough. If uh, to, to and, but it's it's kind of staggering when you think that one in four children are living in households that are experiencing deprivation, and that's not deprivation measured by us. That is deprivation as measured by the Central Statistics Office using the measures that are accepted by government here, but not just here, but across the European Union as well. So we have a, we have a situation where poverty is measured across the whole of the European Union mm. in the same using the same methodology. That doesn't mean that there's the same poverty line in every country, but it's measured in the same way. But because of the fact that the, the, the median, as they call it, the, 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 inc- the income in the, in the middle, uh, and not the average, no, but the income in the middle uh, is the one that it's based on. Poverty line is 60% of that. Mm. Now, if that's the, if that's the situation, uh, it, sorry, it depends then on the various uh, income levels in various countries that the actual poverty line in, in the amount of money would vary from country to country. But the, it's the pro- correct way to compare and contrast countries. And we are in a situation where over 15% of the population is is all the time in that space. And that's not good enough, I think, as a society, particularly if you think of it now, 100 years after the rising, 100 years after that statement about cherishing all the children of the nation equally. Uh, And I know that that was about everybody in the society, not just children as such. Uh, But the reality is, if you think in terms of all the children of the nation, everybody, uh, we have 15 plus percent of that population currently living in poverty a century after the rising and at a time where Ireland is one of the richer countries in the world. That's for all people, that figure, isn't it? Nearly 16%. uh, And over 18%, in fact, uh, I think, uh, for children. Uh, uh, Your report looks at all of the people in uh, the country, regardless of uh, their age uh, and there are people who are at work who are experiencing poverty, some 5.6% uh, according to this social justice that, That's over 100,000 people. Mm. Uh, uh, but is it uh, because uh, 42% of the unemployed, as opposed to those who are working, are 
experiencing poverty uh, that uh, children are experiencing poverty? Do children tend to come from unemployed families, families who have disabilities or other problems uh, that uh, are, are uh, pr- affecting their income levels? Not, not completely, because if you look at it closely, there's more people now uh, in a job than are unemployed who are living in households with poverty. For example, there's 109,000 people in Ireland with a job who are living in households in poverty. There's 102,000 of uh, uh, people living uh, where where it, the person is unemployed mm. are actually living in, 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 in houses living in poverty. Now, that basically says to you that there are two things. You have to tackle the, uh, the households that are headed by an unemployed person and you also have to tackle the issue of uh, the, the working poor. And both of those are income issues at one level yeah. and you can tackle those by on, for unemployed people it's welfare rates for people at work it's the refundable tax credits but you also have to look at the services that are being provided and that, that's a very very important issue because issues like housing like health care like child care these are critical issues that need to be put in place if we're going to be effective at tackling poverty particularly if we're going to be effective at tackling child poverty mm. and you say that we can't and should shouldn't blame the children for the position that perhaps uh, their parents have found themselves in or left their children in, as uh, the case may be. But if you were to increase welfare rates, as one example that you mentioned there, that would be good for the 42% of the unemployed who are living in poverty. But uh, why give it to the 58% of the unemployed who aren't? Well, that's 58% of the people in poverty. I think the issue with them is that basically you've got to start moving towards a situation also on the pay side where decent rates of pay and conditions are are, are recognised as being extremely important. Mm. We have a minimum wage, which is welcome in itself, but the minimum wage is low and we need to start moving from the minimum wage towards the living wage. Mm. And the living wage is about €2 an hour more than the minimum wage. Mm. The living wage is the one that will take you over poverty will take the household over poverty, uh, over, over the poverty line, if you know what I mean, and out mm. of poverty. And that's the critical focus that's required there uh, if we're to sort of be serious about tackling the scale of, of child poverty and adult poverty. But too, it, if Ireland. the majority of people can live off welfare, surely the welfare rate is not the problem. The problem is what people are doing with their welfare, whether they have other debts or whether they drink it all or smoke it all or gamble it all or some of these other reasons uh, that people will quite often put forward. But the actual welfare rate is below the poverty line. So it, like it, isn't, it isn't fair to be saying, as, as, as sometimes people think mm. that people on welfare are doing fine. Uh, they're not. Their, their income is below the poverty line and we tend to forget that. And that's why, in a way, they need to be the, 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 poverty, uh, the social welfare rate needs to be indexed to, say, 30% of, of, of um, average uh, well. Uh, wages, if you like, put it in that space. Yeah, the minister, mean, the minister is talking about indexing it, but in a, a different way. That's correct, and we've had quite a serious discussion with the, with the minister and the department on that at the moment, and with yeah. the government generally, because the reality is that if you index welfare uh, to, we'll say, the the price, the, the, mm. the consumer price index, what happens in effect is that the gap widens between uh, people with wages and uh, people on welfare. And by definition, what will happen is that more people will fall into poverty. Not So therefore, 
taking that particular approach will increase poverty, not reduce it. Well, Why? Because last... we would always expect mm-hmm. wages mm-hmm. to outperform uh, the consumer price index. And if it didn't, uh, I think workers would be up in rebellion and they'd, they'd feel that they were, there was a fundament, something fundamentally wrong in the society and in, they'd be right mm-hmm. to think that. In, in the last two or three years, welfare has increased by a, a fiver, basically speaking, uh, mm-hmm. and Regina Doherty now saying that it should increase with the rate of inflation, uh, which uh, had those increases uh, applied over the last couple of years, you'd have been talking about far less than a fiver, wouldn't you? Maybe one you or would. two euro if you were lucky. You would, and if that were the case, poverty would be higher today than it actually is. So that, that I think proves the point that the minister's focus on indexation is good, but the minister's focus on indexing it to the consumer price index is, is not good. And what we would suggest very strongly to the minister is the correct index is average wages. And if you can, say, benchmark the welfare rate, we said 30% of average wages, it does two things. Mm. It starts to lift it out above the poverty line. And secondly, it takes it out of the political arena. And it's no longer a political football. Uh, people trying to outbid each other or underbid each other, as the case may be, depending on who they're talking to or who they're representing. Uh, what we would love to see is a benchmark that would be, say, 30% of, of average wages and that that would be automatically paid. Uh, and that, that you'd have a situation then where... Uh, you'd, you'd be protecting people and making sure that they weren't falling into poverty uh, year by year and that we would in actual fact if, if, we, if we did that we'd be well down the road to tackling the issue of not just uh, child poverty but all, overall poverty remember the thing we talked about earlier adequate uh, adult social welfare rates are critically important for uh, tackling the issue of child poverty because you have to get the families out of the poverty that they're in in which the children are actually living. And you're also suggesting, as you have been for many years, uh, to increase the take-home pay of the low pay, but not necessarily by increasing their pay, but making tax credits refundable. That's correct. Like, I think people don't realise that there's nearly 110,000 people in Ireland uh, who are living in poverty, but they actually have a job. Now, I think that's an issue that needs to be focused on. The working poor issue needs to be tackled. Now, the the, the simplest way of dealing with that is to make sure that all the people with a job actually benefit from the full value of the tax credits that they have, particularly the two main tax credits that employees have. And if 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 they were to benefit fully from that, it would mean that there wouldn't be a huge amount of additional money, but it would be enough to lift them quite dramatically closer uh, to the poverty line, in many cases taking them over the poverty line uh, so and taking them out of poverty. Uh, I think at the end of the day, to, to be supporting, it's not defensible to be supporting an economy uh, and economic development that pays people less than the poverty line. That, like, that at the end of the day, that, that wages are not good enough uh, or high enough to ensure that uh, people's people are taken out of poverty if they take up a job. Now, the people we're talking about, the 110,000 that are there, they're better off in a job Mm. than they are on welfare. It isn't a question that that welfare is higher. It's not. A lot of people... Mm-hmm. The, the people actually are, are better off in that space, uh, in the in the space of actually having having um, a job. But the problem is that they're still in poverty, despite the fact that they have a job. Making tax credits refundable, particularly the two main uh, tax credits that they benefit from, would make it 
big difference in this context. Okay, Sean, I have to leave it there, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us this morning, as always. You're welcome, as always, Michael. Thank you very thank much. Thank you very much. Father Sean Healy, the Director of Social Justice Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. It's not often that we talk about uh, commercial companies and how they do their business on this programme, let alone praise uh, the way they're going about uh, doing their business. But two corporations worth uh, mention today, Lidl, the German supermarket chain, and Guinness for efforts to reduce uh, the amount of plastic uh, that we'll end up using. Let's talk uh, about this with Claudia Tormi, who the manager of the Sick of Plastic campaign. Good morning to you, Claudia. Uh, I, I take it that from the two stories that we're about to talk about that your campaign is having some impact. It is, yes. Um, so our Sick of Plastic campaign launched the Shop and Drop uh, last year as part of Earth Day. Um, and we asked shoppers to leave behind their plastic packaging in protest of the excess plastic that we're finding in our supermarket shelves. And now they will be able to do that uh, by way of an arrangement that Lidl is putting in place from the beginning of next month. Explain to our listeners what they're about to do. Yeah, so in response to the customer's demands, a number of supermarkets have made improvements, and that includes Lidl. Um, And Lidl have introduced this week um, new recycling bins um, or new bins for Mm. people to put their unwanted packaging into. This does not only include plastic, they're inviting their customers to leave behind any unwanted packaging in the shop so they don't have to bring it to their household waste. Whether it's paper, cardboard or plastic for that matter. Yeah, but our main concern is the plastic that's not recyclable at home and that's why this movement of customers demanding change from the supermarkets is to ask the supermarkets to eliminate the plastic that cannot be recycled from your household waste. Mm. Uh, and Lidl has been somewhat progressive in doing that. Uh, they stopped using single plastic straws, for example, and they're planning to stop selling plastic-stemmed cotton buds. Yeah, um, and I think a number of um, businesses have done this because this is following new EU legislation um, that certain single-use plastics are being banned. So a lot of, of businesses are kind of getting ahead of the game and making those changes now before the policy is going to come in. Um, but, yeah, it's great that they're doing this, and we really, really do encourage, but there is still more that needs to be done. Um, and that's why customers will continue demanding change from their supermarkets. Um, and we really do welcome all these changes. All right, and Guinness then investing €18.5 million Euro in order to reduce the amount of plastic it uses. I'm sure you're pleased by what it's announcing. Anybody who buys a few cans of beer or a slab of beer will know that they generally come in uh, plastic. Uh, that's to be replaced by recyclable cardboard and to the plastic rings uh, that the cans are separated by uh, is uh, to be done away with. Yeah, this is great news. Um, And this is also something that we're a bit concerned about too. It's not only what you see on the supermarket shelves in terms of it's your your cans of Guinness or your vegetables. It's also how they're being packaged when they're being delivered to the supermarket from the producers and the manufacturers, how they're being shipped and transported. I mean, there's a lot of plastic going into that as well. So we would hope that this demand for change on supermarket shelves will have an effect when it trickles back down to the other stages of our produce coming into the supermarkets because Mm. there is a lot of packaging and we would like to see supermarkets and businesses implement changes for reuse and alternative packaging like cardboard 
um, and even other containers that can be reused instead of the single-use plastic mentality that we've gotten ourselves into. Mm, the plastic rings that hold a, a six-pack of cans uh, together are terrible things, aren't they? And I, I think there's a lot of people who tend to cut them up before they put them into the bin because uh, they can be very dangerous to wildlife. They can be dangerous to wildlife, yeah. But even if they are cut up, and say if they leak into rivers and the oceans, they still break down mm. into these microplastics. And um, studies are finding that these are having, they're basically poisoning our seas, poisoning our fish, poisoning our cells. And um, yeah, there's, there's just, it's kind of mind-boggling all these, these problems with plastic. And But, you know, refusing plastic is the first thing that we should do. I mean, mm. the five ores are refuse is the first one reduce reuse recycle and um, so we should be thinking about that before making changes to existing plastics like how can we actually get rid of this plastic that we don't need mm. well there is the good news from guinness uh, we're not going to be given it uh, in future it would seem uh, and with any luck other producers will follow uh, in the interim perhaps uh, people will think about cutting up those rings uh, so that birds uh, don't get caught in them and choke and that sort of uh, thing uh, but when you see the likes of Lidl and Guinness uh, making moves like this as I said uh, the report here is that Guinness is to spend 18.5 million euro making these changes you'd have to believe that that's in line with public sentiment in other words this is what people want I think it is what people want. People are fed up with what's happening to our planet. Um, and But making these changes, they may, may cost some money now, but mm. they're going to cost us much more in the long term. So it's definitely worth spending the money to make changes right now and make them fast and have a big impact now before we have to face even bigger crisis in the future. So having Guinness and Lidl kind of lead the way for other businesses to implement changes and reduce our plastics and other harmful materials mm. is definitely really, really encouraged. And I, I suppose these companies know that people will vote with their feet. If that's what people do actually want, well, then it's those products or those shops where they're more inclined to shop. Exactly, yes. And people are choosing to um, shop more ethically where they can, where they can afford it and where it's accessible to them. And the more businesses that make this an option for people, the more people can do it and the the swifter the the transition will be for everybody. Okay. Are you surprised or is this what you might have expected, Claudia? Um, I'm pleasantly surprised. Mm. It's actually really, Mm. really great to see businesses take this on board and I really do hope it will influence our government to implement changes as well, Mm. to change Mm. policies um, and for other businesses to follow suit as well. All right. right. We'll leave it there. Thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning. Claudia Tormi is uh, the manager of the Sick of Plastic campaign. Michael Reed on LMFM. Sport Ireland will be in front of uh, the Joint Oireachtas Sport Committee again tomorrow. It'll be uh, the second appearance in a couple of weeks' time. And this time it follows uh, the appearance of John Delaney and a delegation of FAI officials last week. Melda Munster is Sinn Féin's spokesperson on sport and a member of uh, that Oireachtas committee. She's on the line. Good morning to you and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Obviously a a lot has happened in the interim and indeed over the weekend. Uh, What are your thoughts this morning? Oh, it's just unfolding by the minute, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Um, There was that article yesterday in the the Times, Mark Teig again, um, reporting on the credit card fiasco this is John Delaney's use of yes, his credit of the, card. The yes, work so. credit card, you know, and the fact that the FAI board, when he had contacted them, had no comment to make on it. 
you know, and he, he had uh, revealed about cash withdrawals that were made on the work credit card, over €6,000 and meals in the local pub and five-star hotel and money spent on designer shirt making and dry cleaning and duty-free purchases, you know. Um, but the surprising thing was, for me anyway, that the FAI board had, had the FAI when contacted had said they'd no comment to make on it. And that comes back again to the farcical display we all witnessed at the meeting last week where there were no questions forthcoming. I mean, the, the board knew in advance of the meeting because we had to furnish them mm. with, with questions. They knew what questions needed answering coming in and they gave, they gave no answers, you know, that would have satisfied anyone, you mm. know, even including the, the original statement that they had put out saying that they were all aware, you know, there was a bridging mm. loan. And then that they they had contradicted that statement then in a later one saying that some members didn't know. But even when they were asked the simple question, well, who signed off? If that is the case, who signed off on the original statement? Um, they couldn't answer that, you know. So um, there was other many questions that they said they'd respond to later in the day. And we're still waiting. I checked my emails earlier. Um, and we haven't got a response. You know, they yeah. kind of presented a united front, if you like. Um, and I think the the concern for everybody now is that the the FAI are still being run by officers on the board who still think they've no questions to answer. Yeah, That's I was talking to well, I was talking to Robert Troy on uh, Friday, I think it was, uh, about a story that appeared in the Irish Independent uh, and how you could have taken it from that story that the reason John Delaney wrote the €100,000 cheque was because Dundalk FC were responsible because they were demanding money due to it. Uh, did you see that story or what are your thoughts on, no, on how I, that I ended up in a national somebody, newspaper? Somebody had put it up on um, mm. Twitter or something, I'd just seen it. But sure, they were entitled to the money. That was the money that they'd, the prize money that they mm. were entitled to from UEFA, you know, um, so there were every right to ask for that that funding to be transferred. I'm not suggesting otherwise. I'm just wondering yeah. why I was reading about it, uh, because as yeah, you say, they were entitled to it. So why was I reading about it in the context of John Delaney's loan? It, it seemed to be giving the impression that Dundalk had put such pressure on uh, the National Association that it caused this debacle. Well, I mean, perhaps, and you can't say for certainty, but perhaps that was put into the public domain, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know I imagine it was. Yeah, yeah. I so imagine yeah. somebody close to this story put that into the public domain to give us that impression. When it suddenly became an issue, yeah, mm. yeah. Uh, I mean, that's that's what you're dealing with. I mean, if, you know, you've, I've witnessed uh, many farcical, you know, committee meetings and, you know, mm. even council meetings, you know, things up in, in Leinster House. But I don't think I've ever, think, ever witnessed anything just as farcical as that last week. I, I, I think you know. the FAI have said that they'll come back before the committee. Uh, from what we're hearing, I gather John Delaney won't, uh, that he'll step down from his position, this new position in the FAI. Yeah, I'd heard that, that they're having a meeting today uh, to discuss that, uh, John Delaney leaving the FAI. But it's my opinion um, that the, the board should go. And uh, because, you know, at this stage, given what we witnessed last Wednesday, mm. they were not forthcoming with answers. As I said, they almost they did present a united front. You know, there, there was board members there that, you know, they were they were all hiding behind the fact that Grant Thornton and Mathers mm. were carrying out a report. And as I had said, sure, the people, we don't need that. The people that have the answers are in the room. Mm. You know, and they just sat. Yeah. And given that they didn't give the answers and given 
uh, how people are putting two and two together and coming up with four, perhaps, maybe 66, or God knows, uh, because those people who have the answers aren't giving us the answers. Should the answers be discovered by way of a state-commissioned investigation? Well, I don't know about that. I mean, you have the, the Office of the Director of Corporate Enforcement, and I had said to the FAI, would they have a problem with the 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 Office of Director of Corporate Enforcement carrying out a forensic audit of their accounts? You know, because I think at this stage, and, and that was bef- before we had details of the credit card, you know, um, spending, uh, it would, if something like that would need to happen, and you'd imagine that would frighten the be the bejani out of them, you know, if they were to go in. And they have the powers to do that. Mm. And the board are legally responsible for their accounts, you know, and that same board sat there last Wednesday giving us absolutely no no information whatsoever. Mm. You know, they, as I had said to them, you know, you'd imagine somebody would be glad to be given the opportunity to put the record straight, but mm. that wasn't forthcoming. I mean, they stood over everything at the committee meeting. Yeah, and it has to be said that the credit card spending uh, was quite possibly authorised spending. Well, sure, they had said, um, John Delaney had said that he had um, regular meetings with the Director of Finance, and he had said, I'm trying to think, he had said, you know, everything, all the matters arising were conveyed to the board at monthly meetings. So if all of the issues, if they were examining the accounts Mm. at monthly meetings, then they would have all seen this. So were they all complicit in this type of spending of money? You know, so that's... Look, at there's just a mountain of questions. Well, there may have been reason for it, is all I'm saying, and it may have been appropriate spending, uh, and it may have been a, a way of putting uh, the chief executive, which I think would be relatively common for people in a position like that, uh, to be able to pay bills without going around with large amounts of cash themselves uh, and uh, then that's dealt with uh, through the uh, accounts uh, at a later stage. Well I don't know, Mm. say for example the cash withdrawals Mm. that were made, I don't know of any company card that really allows you to make cash withdrawals. And I suppose that's the point that we don't know. Yeah, Yeah. you have a record Mm. of it. Mm. So there were over, as I said, over 6,000 euros. Well, well, this is the thing. I mean, there are are pertinent questions. There are questions uh, that merit being put to John Delaney and to others, and we assume, as you always would, that there are reasonable reasons for those instances. And if they told us what they were, well, then those questions would stop being asked. The problem, as you say, is you were stonewalled and they didn't answer those questions. In particular, John Delaney went shtum, saying that he had legal advice not to take questions. Is there anybody who can explain what legal advice would suggest that it would be wrong to answer questions uh, uh, about your own behaviour. Yes, and put the, the record straight, yes. you know, which is what I said to him. Like, it, it was just incredible. It was it was literally incredible, you know, and that's why I think, you know, it happened with the Olympic Council of Ireland. Funding was withdrawn until such time as the board was cleared out. And that's what hap- needs to happen with the FAI board. We need to restore trust in a complete clean out you know, there's too much of um, the, the lack of good governance and the, we've seen the lack of accountability last week. So unless 
Unless the board go, I okay. don't think anything's going to change. And but, I think it's such a serious matter. But, but that's going forward. What about looking back on what might have happened here? If John Delaney resigns today, which I think has already happened, uh, is that the end of the questions for John Delaney? If the board follows suit, is that the end of the questions for the board? No, as, as I said, I think the ODCE need to come in and carry out a forensic audit of the accounts. If, if for nothing else, other than to get to the bottom of all the questions, that remain unanswered, but also to send out a signal to every other organisation that's in receipt of state funding that, you know, we expect um, adherence to good governance, we Mm. expect accountability, we expect transparency, all of that. It has to be done, because how long is this going on? You know, we we literally need to just get this by the scuff Mm. of the neck and make an example. Should the FAI be back before you before this scheduled meeting with Sport Ireland tomorrow? I'm just wondering about the sequencing of it because last time in Sport Ireland were saying, look, we're asking the same questions you're asking and we can't get answers either. Uh, and what's changed since? Uh, nobody's managed to get any answers. It, it remains uh, a story uh, of questions and no answers. No, I think it would be a complete waste of time given the farce we saw last Wednesday. I think it's now with the Minister and Sport Ireland in at the committee tomorrow and we need to uh, apply pressure to the Minister to take action. I know he came out last night and said the 100 million new sports capital grant, mm. you know, that people, organisations won't qualify if they don't adhere to good governance, but he was happy in, with the FAI journey to compliance, and I remember um, this was before even the 100,000 loan. I had asked about term limits for board members, mm-hmm. and his response to me at the time, because I remember thinking, journey to compliance, with good governance, I said to myself when he said it. He, he was happy with, with the FAI's journey to compliance with good governance, Just and that was just a few weeks ago. Mm. And up until then, he was saying it was nothing to do with him. It was a matter for Sports Ireland. So I was glad to see that he finally found his voice on this. You know, okay, he was well, happy to allow the FAI to continue with our term I'm sure you'll put that point to him tomorrow, as you yeah. say. Shane Ross but will be in front to, of your committee. He uh, needs to. I mean, there's a precedence there where the Olympic Council of Ireland had their funding withdrawn until there was a change of board. And this is such a serious matter now with the FAI board. Mm. that He needs to do the same thing because okay. you can't punish grassroots. All right. Grassroots had no hand actor part in this. I'm the over board time. has to take mm. responsibility. Okay, I have to leave there. Thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning, though. Imelda Munster is Sinn Fein's spokesperson on sport and a TD for Louth. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Maggie McGuire joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Maggie. Good morning, Michael. How are you doing? I'm very well. Uh, just moving a little bit closer there, though, if you would, so as we can okay, hear you. There we go. Okay. Um, <laughs> what have you got for us? Um, well, I'm just going to finish up with, um, I'm going to start off even, I suppose, to finish up. I'm going to start off with a couple of um, comments that we had left over from Friday morning show. Um, Carmel was in contact with us about our interview with Jonathan O'Brien on the mm. issue of the children's hospital costs and she was saying that um, you know she was listening with interest and she just cannot believe how much uh, the overrun has has become basically Mm -hmm. she's saying that it's going to have a measurable impact on all health services and the sad thing is that no one even now can put a figure on the final cost of the project so God only knows how much it's going to end up costing I think everybody is flabbergasted I think so yeah Yeah. it's just it's Uh, kind of like the it's the thing that keeps on giving the the figure just grows and grows and grows and nobody can see an end of it really so I'm not sure who's most flabbergasted but I think everybody is Mm -hmm. exactly and Pat was in contact with us with a little plea a personal plea to you Michael if that's okay Um, he says he's not somebody who 
who rings in the station all the time. But, well, um, thanks for ringing in this time, Pat, uh, yeah. I think. Uh, no, I, no, it's I, good. I feel an if coming, though, yes. A little um, bit of a one, a little bit of one. He just wanted to know if you could possibly please take a week off from discussing Brexit on the show. Oh. That he's sick, sore and tired of hearing it. He said, it's not personal, mm. personal to you. Yeah. You're just a show that he listens to. Mm. And obviously he knows the topic is important mm. and has to be discussed. But he said he's just sick of hearing about Brexit in general yes. at the minute. And seeing as it's been put back to October, could we please take a break from it just for this week? Yeah, well, we actually have put Brexit into respite. We have. <laughs> it seemed, but not us. Not <laughs> no, us. No. Uh, it's gone into respite, which means uh, there'll be little talk of Brexit on the programme as a result, it seems. We will actually uh, have some talk because uh, there's uh, some things uh, that uh, still remain of concern. Uh, and it's not Brexit, I suppose, that we've been talking about. It's what it means or what it might mean and how important it might end up being to all of us in our, our lives. And uh, hopefully uh, it's not going to happen or it's going to be delayed uh, for such uh, a long period of time that we won't need to think about it for some time to come or that when it does eventually happen that it'll be such a, a watered-down version of Brexit uh, that it won't be of as much concern to us then as it was, let's say, last week. Mm-hmm. Maybe not as uh, 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 concerning today for us uh, because of the latest extension, uh, but uh, everybody is fed up with it. Uh, no matter how important it is to you, everybody is fed up with it completely. I think there's no doubt about it. And uh, funny you should mention, or that Pat should call <laughs> in, uh, as he did, asking us to stop talking about it because we went out and about to try and gauge the public sentiment on Brexit and indeed uh, this latest extension. And Marie Kearns uh, has been speaking to people locally and asking them if they care or not. Uh, surprisingly, my 12-year-old children uh, are very tuned in in school with it, which I find really interesting. And they're just confused that Halloween will be affected. They keep thinking it's imminent and it's going to change everything. I was getting my driver's licence changed on account of it, and that seemed to have a big impact. So just really confused and really Brexit fatigued, So, which is a pity because it's a big impact on all of us and yes, we seem to be exhausted by it and it hasn't happened. I think it's a joke. I don't think Britain will ever leave. I don't think so, no. It's put back the whole time. I don't think it'll ever leave, no. A good job, Annie, for us. Another, at least another six months at least. Do you admire the way the EU is handling it or do you think they could be doing it differently? No, I think they're mild them, yeah. I think England is just stuck in a rush with them. You know, that's not doing anything at all. They're, they're, I don't some of them want to leave at all. I think it's a good idea. Yes, I do. Uh, for the sake of the North and that, until they work something out. A joke. An absolute joke. I don't think they know what they're doing themselves, but I, it's just a disaster. I don't think anybody here realises the damage it's going to do if it does come in, but they just need to make their mind up. I don't agree with this extension. They should just go if they're going. Well, for us, I think the extension is good because we don't have to do any of the things we need to set up that probably aren't set up. But it is just kicking a can down the road, as my friend here has said, and we don't know what's going to happen at the end of that as well. Lots more uncertainty. Nobody knows. I'm tired of listening to it every day and nothing has changed and it's all these talks and nothing has come out of the talk. I'm not really interested in Brexit or with the goings-on, like, as long as it doesn't affect me. I don't know. In my day-to-day life, I don't care. They're either in or they're out, like, it's getting to be a joke now at this stage. And are you fed up with this? Yeah, I am. And listening to it. Oh, my God. And I just feel so sorry for Theresa May. I do. It wasn't her idea. She didn't want to leave, like, in the first place. I definitely think they've had enough time that Theresa May should be fired by now and also that they just need to get their act together right now because they're just, like, they're not only messing up their own country but they're, like, making things difficult for other countries as well. And do you fear that it's just going to keep going on and on and on with further extensions? I hope not, but, you know, I think so. 
I do think so because like don't want to have it done and dusted by now but it's not so you can't really trust someone to say that they've got like a date well I don't know about Theresa May will the extension do her any good or not they can't seem to agree and with the northern people and that I don't know what'll happen. I understand none of it. Sorry, not a clue as to what's going on, what's happening, who gives a... <sighs> How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I think uh, there's a word missing there somehow. <laughs> Strong thoughts, if ever there was. And uh, thanks uh, to all of those local people in RD who took time out to speak with Marie Kearns for us. I think there's a lot of people there, Maggie, who are just like Pat, who absolutely. are just like me, who are just like you, for that matter. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, Maybe we should send some of them over to Westminster and um, let them give their thoughts directly to the mm. people there. Maybe that'll speed things up a little bit. But um, I'll move on to some of the comments from this morning, if that's mm. OK. We had a massive reaction to the first piece in the show with Sean Healy oh. in relation to the poverty index. And Jane was in touch and she was just saying she thinks it's shocking that so many young children are living in poverty in Ireland in this day and age. The government is continuing the work of previous governments when it comes to failing our children. And when you look at how taxpayers' money has been squandered in the past and continues to be squandered today, mm. it's mm. just sickening and the government should yeah. hang its head in shame. Yeah, and I, I suppose if you think about what we were talking about this morning in the context of the overrun of the National Children's yeah. Hospital, which you mentioned uh, a moment ago, and how we seem to have a, a lot of money sometimes and at other times it's a, a different story and problems like this where one in five children living in poverty. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm um, staying on the same subject. Anne yeah. was in contact as well to say how have we become a country that's so accepting um, of the level of impoverishment being experienced by so many. Mm. Um, Father Healy is right in what he's saying and that government needs to be more proactive in tackling this. They're not doing enough and that needs to change. Mm. If small changes to welfare rates or pay improvements will improve the living standards of so many, why are government 
dragging their feet on it. Okay, well, look, you're going to have uh, people knocking on your door looking for a vote in uh, the next couple of weeks. Uh, maybe uh, if you feel so strongly about it, you should mention it to them. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Joe, again, on the same subject, it says his blood is boiling after hearing those statistics, um, particularly mm-hmm. the one about the kids. Um, what kind of country are we living in at all? Um, we're failing to protect our most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. The government are totally removed from the reality of everyday life for most Irish people. Mm-hmm. Those not already in poverty are barely keeping their heads above water financially. But yet, if you listen to what government are spouting about on a daily basis, you think mm-hmm. you're all living the high life. Thankfully, we've people like Sean Healy and Peter McVeary around to keep the public informed about the reality mm-hmm. and to keep the government on their toes. Well, we are. We are living the high life. I mean, this is going back to what Joe asked uh, at the beginning of the comment that she read it out. What kind of a country are we living in? We're mm-hmm. living in one of the most well wealthiest countries in the world uh, and it is a tale of two cities if you like those who have and those, those who, who have, have not, not yeah. mm. and Mary again on that subject was saying when she listened to Sean's interview this morning the famous quote the greatness of a nation can be judged by how it treats its weakest member sprung to mind mm. um, one in five children in Ireland currently lives in poverty so what exactly does that say about us as a nation or more importantly what does it say about those running the country yeah, yeah, yeah. well we all make these decisions and uh, I suppose uh, the policies of how the country is governed is uh, determined uh, by the views of the people. That's it. And like mm-hmm. you say, we all have the power in, in our own hands yep. to change that in the coming weeks and months. So people should maybe bear that in mind. Again, it's on the same subject. As I said, there was a lot of reaction to Sean's yeah. interview. Mm-hmm. Francis says that the government have no reality, um, no idea of the reality for many people living in Ireland. They don't understand how much people are struggling. They should try living on a carer's allowance while looking after elderly parents and see if they can get by. Mm. And I'm sure this idea of index linking the carer's allowance, the Mm. pension, the dole, whatever welfare payment you're on uh, is of interest to people because uh, you'd be talking about very small increases uh, because they say it's not affordable to continue with the five or a year type of thing. That's it, exactly. Mm. And I'll move on to something else mm. actually this yep. morning. Anne was in contact with us in relation to news reports this morning about the fact that patients from private health insurance are now able to access new um, cancer drugs that mm. are only available to public patients in limited circumstances and she said that this makes her so angry to hear this even though she's not really surprised because it's nothing new. Um, she suffered with ulcers from the ages of 19 to 35, even though the medication she needed was available, um, but was only available for those who could afford to pay for it. Um, she thinks it's disgrace and disgraceful that there's such a two-tier um, medical system and, you know, that the medication should be available to all, not just to those who can afford it. Mm, I'm sure there's a lot of people agree with that. Absolutely. Mm. And uh, Mary was in contact as well in relation to the plastic packaging mm. um, and your in- interview with Claudia. She's delighted by Lidl's launch of these new stations at their shops. Mm. So the amount of packaging you get on produce in supermarkets now is staggering mm. and leaves people with loads of masses of unnecessary ru- rubbish every time they shop. She's hoping that other stores will follow suit and introduce the same service. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think uh, we need to applaud Lidl and Absolutely. Guinness and uh, I suppose that's what I was saying earlier on. Uh, but if you were cynical and were not cynical, you could mm. say to yourself that uh, maybe uh, saving the, the planet isn't at the heart of all of this. It's attracting all of the people in the world who want to save the planet to do you business said you with them. No, I'm just saying if you were cynical. Yeah, if you were. <laughs> that you cynical. might. It's good job or not, yeah. then, isn't it? No, but uh, there is actually a positive message in that because I imagine that somebody uh, is uh, thinking uh, about the environment when they're making these decisions, but they're also looking at it uh, from a, a commercial basis. And the commercial argument obviously won over in these. Yeah.
yeah. corporations to say that if we do this, people will favour our product or our store mm. over others, uh, which is the way people are thinking, I take it. Absolutely. Mm. It's a win-win. Mm. They yeah. win and we win yeah. and the planet wins. So, mm. you know, it's good news all around. And yeah, yeah like you say, they should be applauded for that. Yeah. And I'm conscious of the time, so I'm going to finish okay. up with this one. It's relating to the FAI, the other hot topic of the morning. Mm. Jack is saying that given the amount of speculation over the last 24 hours about John Delaney's future, why doesn't he just do the decent thing and jump ship now? Why drag it out any longer? Just go instead of waiting to be pushed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm not going to try and no, answer that no. one. Where, All right, where do you start? Yeah, no, okay. Thanks for that, Maggie. Thanks everybody who has been in touch. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850 715 958. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, while Brexit uh, may be in respite, uh, the problem has not left us uh, completely and all of the uncertainties up to and including a hard crash out, uh, no deal Brexit remain possible even if some of those options have become all the more remote. It remains game on. Ronan Foley is AIB Business Advisor Team Lead for Cavan Monaghan and Louth based in Drogheda and online with us uh, this morning. Good morning to you Ronan and uh, thanks for joining us. You've seen an increase in, in recent weeks of of uh, the number of businesses that are preparing for Brexit. Uh, But uh, am I right in thinking uh, that there's more focus, more concern, more preparation south of the border than there is north of the border? Yeah, that's that, that's definitely the case, Michael. You know, on a positive, it is great to see businesses in the Republic of Ireland have um, started to to either you know formal plan, formally plan or investigate the impact of, of Brexit on their their business. But you're right; like there's around two thirds of SMEs in the Republic are, are doing that. In the north, it's it's over half, about 56%, have yet to start their their Brexit plan, which is probably reflective of uncertainty on both sides of the border, but particularly in the north. Um, with with everything that has been going on there um, of late. Uh, would businesses uh, this morning be feeling uh, that I put a lot of time, energy and most likely money into something that's not happening? Uh, was I foolish? I don't think a business could be um, accused of being foolish for, for for, for spending time, money and effort in, in preparation for Brexit. Yeah, I agree that there's a huge amount of uncertainty here and not knowing what is going to happen, be it on May the 22nd or the end of October, is a, is, is, is a huge concern for, for business. But at the same time, the impact of a, of a, a hard crash, a, a no-deal Brexit on, 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 on every business in the Republic of Ireland could well be significant um, if they're not prepared for it. Mm. Uh, but very little prospect of that before the end of October, before that Halloween date. Absolutely, yeah. It, it, you know, I suppose the, the 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 comfort of extending the the the, the deadline date is that, yeah, it, it, it's less likely probably that a hard mm. Brexit is going to come about. But at the same time, business can't be complacent in that, in that regard. We've seen how negotiations have gone on over the last couple of years, and the lack of progress up until now um, is, is a real concern. So, you know, there, there, there's some real concerns there from businesses um, that are trading in the UK, but also businesses that are trading domestically as well. OK, so that gives six months, uh, I suppose, uh, to make preparations if companies have not already made preparations. But let's talk about some of the preparations that are already in place. Uh, you've uh, been talking uh, to a, a lot of your customers in business. What are they doing uh, in advance of uh, the prospect of a hard Brexit? 
It's funny, and different sectors are approaching it differently. So, okay, you have businesses that are trading regularly with uh, the UK, both from a supply chain and from a sales perspective. And let's let's take the the, the businesses that are purchasing their, their raw materials from the UK. They've started to stockpile that a little bit more, which has an obvious impact on, on, on that business's cash flow, if you mm-hmm. like, and its ability to, to fund that. Um, then on the other side of it, you've 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 got uh, businesses that are are trading in currencies uh, with the UK. They've maybe started to hedge that a little bit more and fix their their rates for for um, for longer than they would have in the past, just to give them some sort of certainty around budgeting and so on, both from a sales and from a purchases perspective. And I take it it's easier for some lines of business to stockpile than others. Uh, food businesses are, are to some degree, but I, I take it there's limitations on what they can stockpile or how long they can keep produce for because of food going out of date. Absolutely, yeah. Obviously, uh, you know, the, in, the, in the food sector, most foodstuffs are going to have some sort of limited t- uh, shelf life. Um, so that's a difficulty for them. Having said that, we are seeing a couple of businesses that are starting to increase their, their cold storage capacity so they can, they can store that kind of product for longer. Mm. Uh, or find a different product. Find a different product, product um, either in Europe or within Ireland as well. You know, and, and that brings other opportunities as well. It, Brexit has got an awful lot of ne- negative impact, and rightly so, because of the potential impact that it, it could have on business. But there's opportunities there for others as well. From outside of this state, is it? Uh, because uh, I gather that other product would have already been uh, available uh, had it been competitive, uh, and that if it were to source alternatives, uh, they could end up more expensive. Or how is it actually? I think it is, yeah, outside the state, but within the state as well. You know, maybe we are starting to see, in some cases, maybe a right sizing of of, of price points as well, um, because of of, of demand. Now, mm. yeah, obviously there could well be a knock-on effect to the end consumer. Um, with with any price increases as well, which is a which is a huge concern too. Uh, and what about demand? Has demand been uh, affected? Uh, are, are people shopping less uh, as a, a result of the concerns that they might have about the uncertainty of the future? Yeah, I think just under a quarter, about twenty three percent of um, businesses have reported a negative impact on, on sales in in the Republic of Ireland, which is well up on. On uh, let's say last September was only around 12 percent, um, and that's a that's a, that's a big concern. And I think that may well be down to consumer sentiment as much as anything else. Mm. Uh, and you mentioned currency. Currency, uh, one of the biggest uh, fears uh, for people trading in this company. Uh, the central bank was talking. Uh, about parity uh, between sterling and uh, the euro. Uh, if that was ever to transpire, you'd be talking about a, a disastrous situation, obviously, for traders uh, along the border. Uh, Dundalk Chamber of Commerce says that extends all the way down to Balbriggan, in fact, uh, and also a disastrous situation for exporters. Absolutely, and unfortunately, currency volatility is something that we'll never be able to get away with uh, or away from. Sorry, um, be that as a result of Brexit or or other um, global conditions. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's a real concern, and it's impossible to predict where where it'll go to. However, there are facilities available to businesses to to, to hedge that, that that currency so that they at least know what they're going to be buying forward or selling forward. Uh, at into the future. Mm. And going into the future, as you say, there's all this uncertainty. Uh, I suppose uh, there is uh, this relief uh, that the immediate danger is in respite, as I put it at uh, the outset. Uh, but there is, is there a risk of complacency as a result? I, I think that's 
there probably is a risk of complacency, but I suppose within from from, from our perspective, from AIB's perspective, and I know from many other professional bodies and and other institutions, we're trying to to to, to get away from that complacency by saying that you know it has taken two years to, mm. to get this far, um, and yet we're still not we're, we're still not much clearer on on what way this thing is going to go. So. You know, whether Brexit happens or doesn't happen, I think that the best thing that any business can do is to plan for a worst-case scenario. If it's better than that, they've got a much leaner business as a result of it. Uh, And uh, as we know from uh, the Revenue Commissioners uh, had... The UK crashed out last Friday. Uh, You'd have had a a lot of people uh, who'd have been caught on the hop. Uh, Yeah, yeah, a huge amount of people. And, you know, I suppose that's reflected in the survey as well that we have where we, we, you know, while two-thirds is a big enough number, that's still a large percentage of businesses that hadn't planned for, for uh, formally planned for for, for Brexit. Um, so yeah, a, a lot of a lot of business, both from an export import, but also from a domestic trade, would have been caught in the hot, Michael. Mm. Uh, and uh, as a, a result, uh, people uh, are in a position now where they have this window of possibly up to six months. Uh, Possibly less, as you say, uh, but that would mean some sort of orderly uh, withdrawal from the European Union, uh, and it could be longer than six months, but it is an opportunity nonetheless. What would you say to uh, businesses uh, who um, should be preparing for Brexit that haven't done anything as yet? Yeah, so what I would say to any business that, that hasn't prepared is start to prepare now. Now, by doing so, who, who are you going to talk to? So talk to your professional advisors, your accountants, your, your solicitors. There's, there's plenty of, of, of uh, state bodies that are willing to help as well, such as your local enterprise office, uh, such as Enterprise Ireland. Talk to your banks. You know, with an AIV, we've got our own uh, team of Brexit advisors right around the, the country and our business advisor team on the ground. Um, are always there to, to help too because the impact that it could have both from a cash flow perspective um, as, as well as yeah. a, a consumer perspective is huge so get talking to the right people there's plenty of support there um, both bo- both nationally and also locally as well you know more and more people are becoming aware of the, the impact here and, the, and as I say, the local enterprise office in particular is a, is a really good start for many businesses Okay but prudence or, or confidence uh, because uh, you are speaking to people who are so concerned that they're not investing. I think uh, you say a a lot of transport companies, for example, are not investing in in their fleet. Should they continue with that uh, approach or should they say, look, we need to uh, plan for the future and assume that things will be okay? And that's a real difficult one to answer Mm. because the the only way that any transport company will know whether they can um, or whether they should be investing is that if they have got their plan and they see what this thing could potentially look like for them. So, okay, in 12 months' time, if, worst-case scenario, hard Brexit, how is it going to impact on their business? Mm. Can they, can they're, they're, you know, are they going to have to go through a cost cut and will they have to find alternative markets? And those alternative markets can also lead to, to investment requirements from those businesses. Well. And for food companies then that have been stockpiling produce, uh, should they start running that produce out now? Uh, again, <laughs> a hard one to call. Um, and uh, that's all going to come down to their own planning as well. I, I, God, I saw something over the weekend in terms of a, a local retailer, or sorry, a retailer in another part of the country who had mm. stockpiled in advance of the, the end of March and now is left with a, a whole load of stock that's, that, that's perishable and will go out of date. That's a real hard one to call, but that's down to proper planning as well. All right. I think uh, there's uh, people in the country who still have uh, packets of pasta 
from the 80s uh, when they were worried about a, a nuclear bomb, but <laughs> that's another day's work. Uh, do, do, do you care to share your own thoughts with us uh, before you leave us uh, this morning, Ronan? What do you uh, think will happen? Uh, how do you think it'll pan out? I, I, I don't know. You know, the, the six-month extension is, is a great help and a, and a great relief to many businesses. Um, my own thoughts, do I think... I probably think it's probably going to be extended beyond that as well, mm-hmm. but I suppose that's down to, 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 to politicians to do the politicking on um, and the negotiations between the EU and the UK. Um, my, my hope is, that, of course, that there is no Brexit. My, my next hope after that is that maybe perhaps a customs union or something, some sort of arrangement like that, where we can continue to trade uh, with the UK as, as, as heretofore. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Ronan Foley is AIB's business advisor team lead for Cavan, Monaghan and Louth. Michael Reed on LMFM. Upskirting is the term used for somebody taking a photograph up a woman's skirt. On Friday, it became a criminal offence in England and Wales. Offenders could see prison sentences of up to two years for taking an image or a video under somebody's clothing in order to see their genitals or underwear. It's an odd thing, and to my mind, I would have thought that it was a story that was being exaggerated, but it is clearly not. In fact, it appears uh, that this is a trend of sorts. Uh, It wasn't uh, illegal in England and Wales up until Friday of last week, but in 2015, 78 incidents were reported uh, to the police there. That rose to 94 for the whole of 2018. The reports relate to a girl as young as seven, to a woman as old as 70, and to a school teacher who was said to be taking photographs up the skirts of all of the young girls in his classroom. Gina Martin is a young woman who was at a killer's concert in Hyde Park in 2017 and fell victim to this. So we were having a really good time and we've been so excited about going. And we were just talking, it was like 30 degrees, it was really hot, we dressed up. Um, and we were waiting for the killers to come on stage and these two guys started hitting on me and I continually said no. I was like, leave me alone. Um, And then I remember them brushing up against me at some point and I didn't think anything of it and then about 15 minutes later one of them was standing in front of me on his phone and I saw a picture up a woman's skirt of her private parts and I just knew it was me. I kind of just snatched the phone off him immediately. They really quietly said just put the phone in my back pocket so I did and they kept me safe and then they called the police immediately and they arrived. So they separate us um, and they say to me and there's not much we could do because it's not a graphic image because I was wearing knickers. Which I, I mean, in this state, I'm crying and I'm so upset and I'm so embarrassed and humiliated. I felt like a kid. So I kind of did that thing where I went, right, okay, well, I guess you're right, okay. And they went over to him and asked him to delete the image and he deleted the picture to stop the embarrassment, which is my evidence, yeah. Um, I looked into the laws in England and Wales and found out that upskirting isn't a sexual offence here. I went online and looked it up to see if people were talking about this, to see if people thought this was wrong. And all I got was porn websites and just upskirt photos and instructional videos and I realised quite quickly then, okay, this is less of a conversation about why it's wrong and actually more this is a massive community of of people who do this and can get away with it and they know there's not going to be repercussions. I then became pretty angry about it and I launched a campaign to make it a sexual offence here in London Wales. What I've struggled with, I think, is the trolling. I've been called a fame whore, a a liar, a lot of rape threats. If it concerns you that much, just wear trousers. So I launched a campaign, a national campaign, to try and make it a sexual offence in England and Wales. Um, And the reason I did that was because 
Growing up as a woman, you get a lot of unwanted attention and a lot of things happen that make you feel uncomfortable and I think this was the last one that I wanted to deal with. And I decided that if someone was going to make a change, why would it not be me? If I was upset about it, why not, why not try and change something? Um, and use my voice as we're all told to do so often. So I started that campaign and um, it was a success over 18 months and here we are now. So it'll mean that it's a sexual offence. It's a listed sexual offence in England and Wales. It will mean that every situation of it is covered. So whereas it sometimes often the conversation is just for sexual gratification, this is harassment, distress, alarm for women. Um, and we can cover off every single situation it happens in. And it means that women will be supported and listened to when they report it. Nolene Blackwell, Chief Executive Officer of uh, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Good morning. Thanks uh, for joining us, Nolene. Uh, Gina Martin there whose uh, campaign to make upskirting illegal resulted in that law change uh, last Friday. This is something uh, that you've been talking about for some time uh, but uh, are you surprised that there's a massive community online on these porn sites as she outlined to us there who are interested in this? So there's a whole lot of possibility, I suppose, with, with cameras today for what can happen on these porn sites. And that it is the real problem is that it is so easy and sometimes people think it is a, a, an act without any other harm to take a picture like that. But they are uploaded onto porn sites or they are transferred through social media without mm. being on a porn site. Um, there is Porn is one of the most easily available things, even if I'm researching something myself, Michael, for work, if I'm just using Google, mm. it, it doesn't take any length at all to get to a porn site. And this is true, I'd say, for anybody who's listening to you, or for many who are listening to you, uh, that porn is very easily available. Uh, and the trouble is that uploading that kind of material onto a porn site is not um, a criminal behaviour here mm. now, because we still don't have that legislation that makes the taking of intimate images of other people uh, criminal in a way that the police can easily prosecute. Yeah, well, humili instance, humiliating, no doubt. Yeah. Uh, but where did the fellas get the kick in this? I mean, if they're so interested yeah. in ladies' underwear, why don't they go down to the local store and buy a packet of it them themselves? Or is it the humiliation that they're getting the kick out of? It's hard to know. Um, it is perverse behaviour. Uh, perverse behaviour happened before social media. Now it is much easier. It is irresponsible. Uh, it's not clear. What is clear to us is that while people don't know what they can mm. do with a report of that kind of behaviour, it is it is humiliating and it's harmful. People are truly hurt by it. You know, it's mm. not just a question that they're a little bit outraged. People really feel uh, that, that their privacy has been taken away. Someone has invaded their privacy, taken private images of them and have dispensed with them elsewhere. So it's actually... Even just, I, I, I do think sometimes people will do things without thinking them through properly or without understanding the harm that they're doing. And there's two ways mm. that they can be made to understand the harm. One is to look at it from the point of view of the person who has this private 
privacy invaded. I'm afraid they, that, that might be why they're doing it, Lonely, because as I say, I can't understand where the kick in this is. And perhaps the kick is in hurting that person. Maybe they are looking yeah. at that. And it's the yeah. fact that they know that they have humiliated somebody that makes them feel superior. And, uh, and then, Michael, that's where you have to move to the second thing then. Mm. If reasonable uh, understanding won't stop people doing it, then we really knew, do need to get this and the same kind of acts up on uh, the, the criminal statute mm. book. And in fact, ever before Gina Martin started her campaign, mm. this was recognised as harmful behaviour that needed to be addressed the Law Reform Commission published a paper in 2016. They're the government's think tank, their legal think tank. And they published it and said two things needed to happen. One, we needed an online digital commissioner, which is Mm. a different kind of a a thing. And the second thing was new legislation to deal with the ways in which uh, technology can actually harm other people. Mm. And today is the last day for public submissions on what kind of digital commissioner uh, we should have. We've put in a submission, I'm sure loads of other people have, have as well, saying it can't come soon enough. And we've made the point that that won't be enough because legislation, which is currently in the doyle, really does need to be progressed that says where somebody's privacy is invaded, where they are harmed or humiliated by those actions, then the police must have the kind of power that they need to prosecute. Because the Gardaí are quite frustrated as well. They may be able to uh, find out that this is happening. They will be able to say to somebody, delete the image. But beyond that, we don't have the tools. And that's exactly what happened with Gina Martin when she ran off with this fella's phone up to the security guards. They got the police in Hyde Park. The police said, yeah, look, it's terrible what happened to you, but there's uh, nothing we can do. You might, if you're very lucky, get a, a charge of voyeurism to stand up. And that's the situation we're in now. But Gina Martin needs to be congratulated, I think, because that's been a two-year campaign which resulted in that change in the law in England and Wales last week. It's been an offence I think in Scotland for a decade Uh, but can I ask you about some other issues that came up in the clips that we were listening to there because she was talking about when she was in Hyde Park watching out for her favourite band to come on with her her sister that there were two fellas annoying her and she said no, 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 no. It seemed like an awful lot amount of times but they wouldn't take no for an answer and that was only a by the way part of her story because she was saying that's part and parcel of being a young woman in the world today. Yeah. And and it's part and parcel of yeah of socialising. That's ex- that's exactly right. Uh, it was interesting as she says she thought nothing about it because there was nothing like they were just there and they felt that that was their right and their entitlement. I do think that. That is exactly something. And she sounds very capable. But when you think of all the young people who over the course of the summer will be socialising mm. at festivals, in various other uh, places, at concerts all along the way, and, and they don't actually have that, even, even the, the, I suppose, self worth that she seems to have had. She was well able to deal with it. She continued to wait um, or she was, yeah, she seemed to be well able to Mm. deal with it Mm. anyway. Um, But we don't actually even give young girls often the tools so that they can understand this is not their problem that these it's not their uh, fault because this was their, yeah. th- th- this was a, a, a really disturbing thing uh, that she relayed in the clip that we heard there obviously some people thought it was her fault or tried to make it out to be her fault uh, and we're saying to her look if you don't like it wear trousers 
Yeah, and last year, Body and Soul were kind enough to give us um, a stand at the, that festival where we were talking not really about harm, but we were talking about consent mm. and the need for consent and the number of people who were happy to hear that message, who wanted that message to go out at the festival. And they're kind enough to be talking to us again this year with a couple of others, um, because if if we can if we can really get the culture going, I really think we can get people to understand that if somebody doesn't want your attention, mm. you just leave them alone and and give other people the understanding that if somebody's hitting on you, if somebody is annoying you, mm. it is not your fault. It is something has gone wrong with our culture yeah. where people see it as their end. Well, she was the victim and like so many victims, she's being blamed for what happened to her by others in this particular story they're saying well wear trousers uh, and then it wouldn't have happened so it's your fault in other words but not only that she's been the subject of very strong intimidation she said she's had rape threats and people calling her uh, a, a fame uh, queen uh, or somebody looking for fame uh, and that they were being very abusive obviously in how they trolled her as she put her put it yes mm-hmm. and there isn't a single person any single one of these campaigners against uh, sexual harm online who isn't getting that kind of trolling. It's true of anybody who speaks up for their own rights and the rights of others, actually, particularly women uh, seem to be subject to it. And that's why the other piece of harmful communications needs to happen as well. There needs to be um, a better understanding that of, of what publication online looks like. There needs to be a way that you can take people down, take them out, block them better than happens at the moment, which is why we do need better online regulation. Uh, the regulators themselves need to be more ready to stop harmful communications online, and that's why we need the Digital Commissioner. It's one of those things, mm. Michael, that technology has gone way ahead of what the law has been able to do. And as a result of it, sometimes people's very best instincts will come out. Like Gina Martin was able to use technology to make her petition go Mm -hmm. viral, to get the impetus to get the law changed. And so technology can be used for great good and it can be used to allow the most harmful, indecent and basest instincts of people to come forward as well. And that has to be regulated because you can ask people to stop. Maybe you can persuade some, but where that doesn't happen, there have to be sanctions in place. Okay, and uh, if anybody listening to us uh, this morning has uh, concerns about how they were treated or somebody else uh, for that matter uh, and uh, would like to talk to somebody, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre has a 24-hour helpline, one eight hundred seventy seven eighty eight. 88. That's 1-800-77-8888. Nolene, thank you as always. Thank you, Michael. Nolene Blackwell is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you've probably been hearing, uh, homeless people who don't have uh, an address can get a personal address and mail collection service uh, or uh, this is uh, across uh, the country, but in seven post offices in County Louth and two in County Meath. Anna McHugh is the head of corporate communications with on post and she joins us now. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us, Anna. Uh, How do people go about getting these addresses? Well, the very best way is through the local local homeless uh, 
charities um, and other organisation service providers working with people who are homeless or in temporary emergency accommodation or indeed the local authority um, housing departments. We've made it very simple for people to apply for their address uh, but the very best way is to do it in conjunction with with one of the the service providers. Uh, And how can those addresses be used? Are, Are there any restrictions? No, as I said, we've made them very simple. Uh, people can choose a post office that best suits their lifestyle or their location. Um, and that's where they will be collecting their mail. And that is uh, what their address will be based around. And they can use it for any sort of correspondence, whether it's, you know, trying to keep in touch maybe with children's schools, you know, applying for jobs, medical appointments in particular. I know that's come up a lot when we've been in preparing and in planning this. We've, um, you know, we've worked side by side with the homeless charities and indeed with people who've experienced homeless and who are currently in, in emergency accommodation. And, um they use it just as a normal regular address Mm. and uh, then when they go to collect uh, any letters for them at their chosen post office it's important that they have their full um, ID with them, their social welfare services card for example or other official ID Uh, And when you say it comes comes up a a lot, uh, what does that mean? How often does it come up? I take it that it's uh, I'm not sure that you'd have uh, exact uh, data in relation to that but I take it that it's a demand led service and that the reason you're providing the services that there's a lot of demand well indeed i mean we've all you know heard the figures we've seen you know the the heard it on radio seen newspaper articles about the distress and the stress that so many people are going through because they're losing uh, you know their 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 homes losing accommodation reliant on emergency uh, accommodation or indeed you know even if it's couch surfing trying to stay with relatives and um it's come up a lot around uh, you know around medical appointments that if people miss medical appointments they lose their slot they they're you know back to the end of a list another wait same with you know with families trying to deal with different schools and keep in touch and keep some sort of regularity and routine for their families mm. that has just come up a lot to us um, and when we were trying to devise this and just keep it really simple it's not a legal proof of address um, and really it's up to other service providers to decide whether they'll accept this address okay. you know for all their services but we just simply wanted to take a step given that we are you know the experts in addressing you know we know where everyone lives and we have the you know the largest retail network in the country through our 950 post offices. Okay, we felt a- we could really make a difference, and mm-hmm. um, and also you know all of our customers are welcome in post offices. People are used to using them, so it made sense to base this and centre this around the post office network. Very good. So, it's a, a service that's available in seven post offices in Louth, Patrick Street in Drogheda, Castletown Road in Dundalk, Town Parks in Dundalk, West Street in Drogheda, Clambrassel Street in Dundalk, Key Street in Dundalk and Crush Road Avenue in Drogheda. In Meath, uh, there's two post offices, Bective Square in Kells and Kennedy Road in Navan. Uh, an innovative new service. Uh, thanks for telling us about it uh, this morning and nice to talk to you again. Anna McHugh, Head of Corporate Communications with on post. Now, let's go to Oldcastle. Mohammed Basharat is on the line. Good morning to you, Mohammed, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us as readers of the Irish Times. May know your family is facing deportation. Perhaps uh, you tell us about your two daughters, Samaya and Fatima. Uh, thanks for having me. 
Yeah, I have my two daughters, uh, Samia is 12 years old and Fatima is uh, nine years old, yeah. They both are uh, profoundly deaf and uh, they are uh, at the moment in the uh, Barry James uh, school that's uh, called St. Clair, yeah. Mm. And they're doing very well and uh, also uh, they are uh, attending uh, Beaumont Hospital uh, for uh, like every few months, yeah, they, they review their uh, implants and we also go for like uh, speech therapist there and uh, also they are attending uh, a local speech therapist in uh, Cabot and uh, also in the school they have uh, support like special uh, needs uh, hours and resource, resource hours and also they have like a, they're using uh, assistive technology in the school so they can hear the teacher voice for cut. Uh, it's called like radio aid. Uh, okay. so have, you're, 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 you're from Pakistan. Uh, you've been living here for how long? About four years or so, is it? Yeah, four years. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but you were told uh, in 2018 uh, that you were to be deported and sent back to Pakistan. Uh, and you're saying that your daughter's health care needs are such uh, that there should be grounds uh, to allow you to stay. Um, actually, uh, as you may be aware, yeah, this this, this uh, cochlear implant is a quite a new technology, and it's not uh, uh, not uh, uh, available everywhere in the world, especially in Pakistan. And now uh, they have already implanted, and it's all only about to uh, keep it. You know, uh, it's not it's not that now we we need to implant again or something. It's only uh, we just uh, you. Are, this is for life, you know, lifetime. Yeah. Mm. So we have to review always. Yeah, there, there's some issues come out, or you know, if it can happen any time, you know, like uh, it's, if something go wrong, you know, if, if implant failed, you have to uh, operate immediately, and uh, or something like their their body rejected, or uh, infection occur, or something. Anything can happen, you know. Or they are, they are. If they're playing, they they got uh, injured, you know. Because this is a device implanted in their their head, mm. you know. Both sides there's a small chip, uh, and uh, it's a very delicate, you know, very delicate. Uh, and uh, your contention is uh, that uh, the health service in Pakistan would not be able to deal with problems if they arose. No. I don't okay. think so. Yeah. Okay. Uh, how, how many members are there in your family? Of uh, the two girls, and I've, I believe you've a son who was born here as well. Yeah, my youngest son. Yeah, he's uh, now three three years old. Yeah, Muhammad, and also my older son. He's uh, twenty years old now, and he's in Cavan uh, Institute, and he's doing like animal care, and he's halfway in his course. Yeah. Mm. So. Um, and you're expecting to be deported, are you? No, actually, it's a very lengthy procedure. Uh, uh, we can go to uh, High Court and the Supreme Court, and I can go to European Court as well. There's still plenty of option left here. Mm. But I, all I want to, I started this because uh, I had enough, to be honest. Like... Uh, it's it's not easy, you know, if your life is uncertain, you know. Mm. And uh, you don't know what's going to... 
But I, I, I live in England for 12 years, yeah, and I, I struggle there, and I try to get status. And I'm a, I'm a qualified person, you know, uh, educated. And all I want to, my life to be, uh, now is, um, I want to be settled down somewhere. And I was so happy when I came to Ireland and uh, we used uh, my brother, uh, with my brother and he used his treaty right there. They allow us to stay or they allow me to work, mm. you know. And uh, I was happy at least now legally I can work and I can stay in a country, you know. Uh, but now all of a sudden they just, uh, um, actually the problem is not, uh, uh, to be honest, the problem is the solicitor, yeah. In England, in England, also the solicitor let me down. They okay. are hungry for money only. Okay. And okay. here also the solicitor in Ireland. You're, you're the the, 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 the legal case. process. Okay, I understand, Mohammed. Okay, I have to leave it there. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning, Mohammed Basharat uh, brings our program to its conclusion today. God willing, we'll see you for our next program tomorrow morning at nine a.m. right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye bye. LMFM podcasts brought to you with Carrickmac Cross Credit Union, where a student loan can help you finance your further education. Call to Carrickmac Cross Credit Union, O'Neill Street, or Carrickmac Cross C. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie.